Tim Burkhead is Professor of Zoology at Sheffield University, with a special interest in birds. Tim is author of many books, including What It's Like to Be a Bird. Tim talks to Michael Barkley about his fascination with birds since an early age. Let's hear just a snatch of the music of birds. Now, Chaucer said that birds in spring sing with the voices of angels, and there is something otherworldly about the beauty of the dawn chorus, isn't there? 
I love the dawn chorus. I love the emergence of spring. We've had a, a long, cold, silent winter, and suddenly uh, the birds start singing. When I was uh, a teenager, my dad had a Grundig tape recorder, and I would get up at four in the morning, hang the microphone out of the window, simply to record the dawn chorus, and then I would play it back to myself uh, later in the day. And, of course, these days, the dawn chorus is very impoverished. So this recording that we're going to hear is from a, an area rich in birds, and uh, it is is truly inspirational. Why have you decided to follow the dawn chorus with the old Catalan carol, Song of the Birds? I love this piece of music because in the written version, there's a, a lot of different verses, each one about a different species of bird. And although we haven't heard the words of that, I just think the cello is the closest sound to bird song, and I just love the passion with which this piece is played. Well, we'll hear it played by Pablo Casals, but first we're going to have that dawn chorus recorded in the Forest of Dean by the naturalist Jeff Sample. Song of the Birds, played by Pablo Casals, who was accompanied by the Prades Festival Orchestra in his own arrangement. If we could translate birdsong into our much inferior human language, Tim Burkhead, what kind of lyrics do you think the birds would be singing? They'd be singing two types of lyrics. First, they would be singing, keep out, this is my patch, this is my territory. Most bird song is uttered by males. Females do sing in certain species, but predominantly it is males, and males are defending a territory because the territory contains the resources, the food supply, the necessary site and so on that the female needs. The other message that they're giving is, I'm available. And so but male birds sing to announce their availability to potential mates. Of course, it isn't straightforward for males. The female will visit several males in succession, and she's very choosy, and she will only take one after he's performed accordingly. 
And you've said the bullfinch is the ultimate songbird. Why is that? It's the ultimate songbird to me. Natural <laughs> song is actually very disappointing, but the bullfinch has this extraordinary ability to mimic other sounds, particularly tunes whistled to it by a human owner. Now, all birds, male birds, pick up their song by listening to usually their father or another male. But in the 1500s, people recognised that bullfinches were exceptionally talented. And so people uh, took young bullfinches from the nest and hand-reared them, whistling, particular, this had happened in Germany, whistling to them a German folk song two or three times every day for four or five months. It was a long, <laughs> drawn-out process. And the hope was that at the end of that period, some of the birds, and mainly the males, but sometimes the females, would be able to replicate uh, those tunes. And this gave us uh, an incredible insight, I think, into what was going on in the bullfinch's brain. Well, let's hear the bullfinch, since you are so keen on him. This is uh, him learning a human song from his trainer, who's whistling to him. But first, the sound of the bullfinch. Now the recording of the trainer whistling to the bullfinch. And has the bullfinch learnt the tune? Let's find out. That's quite extraordinary. I don't think I'd have believed it if I didn't trust you. Because the, the bullfinch has learned the whole tune, improved it in some ways, moved it up a tone and neatened the structure. That is the essence. That That is the magic of, of the bullfinch's ability. Uh, they always move it up, semitone or a tone, and... You're absolutely right. They improve on it. It's as though they have in their heads an idea of how the tune should be structured. And where the trainer is kind of pausing for breath or sounding a bit kind of lispy, the bullfinch just filters all that out and does a much more accomplished performance. It is, I mean, I'm just blown away by it. It's extraordinary. So, I mean, basically, they almost act like, like our editor, indeed, in tidying it up, linking it up, and then just to show how superior they are, moving it up a tone or a semitone. Exactly. The other thing that's really remarkable about uh, that kind of mimicry is that you can play recordings to birds. I mean, as I say, all birds learn their songs in that kind of way. Um, but a, if you just play a recording on its own, it's never as good. A crucial part of that process is the interaction either with another bird in the, in the natural world or, in this case, with their owner. And that recording was actually made by a colleague of mine, Jürgen Nikolai, and um, he sent me a video uh, 
of him with one of his bullfinches. And you can just see they're in love with each other. The bullfinch is singing for its master, and he's in love with the bullfinch because it's doing so well. It's just, it is remarkable. That connects in a wonderful way with our next music, which is by Mozart, written in 1784, a piano concerto. And the last movement links, I think, to a pet starling. Yes, I mean, Mozart um, found this bird in a, what we would call a pet shop today and um, heard it whistling a tune, which he says he composed some time earlier. So it's a bit of a mystery how the starling had, had heard this. Um, subsequently... Um, Mozart incorporated other bits of Starling music into some of his other compositions. There's another piece written, I think, in 1787 called A Musical Joke. And some people have claimed, who are experts on Starling song, that they can hear some of the elements of Starling song in that particular piece as well. Well, Mozart bought uh, the bird, didn't he? Took him home to be a family pet, kept him for three years. Sadly, Starling then died. So Mozart buried him... uh, with considerable ceremony, and he wrote uh, an epitaph for the starling, which goes, Here rests a bird called Starling, a foolish little darling. He was still in his prime when he ran out of time. understand Mozart's uh, emotional connection with the Starling. I once gave a public lecture on on undergraduate teaching and I wanted to bring something uh, special to that um, lecture. So I asked my colleague Lloyd Buck if he would bring his five tame Starlings and allow them to become part of my lecture. We had a few rehearsals in the afternoon to try to ensure that the birds would do what I wanted, which was to fly out of the wings from the lecture theatre and alight on me as I was talking. And they did it. They did it so perfectly that I was completely overcome and I couldn't get my words out. (laughs) And they were perched on my head and my shoulder and were kind of twittering and singing towards me. And it really was one of the most emotional events of my life. It was phenomenal. Well, we can understand why Mozart was so taken with the bird. Absolutely. The third movement of Mozart's Piano Concerto, number 17 in G, not with Starling, but with soloist Mitsuko Ushida, who was also directing the Cleveland Orchestra from the keyboard. Oh, 
Henry Vaughan produced a book of religious poetry in 1650. He wrote six songs of farewell, which Hubert Parry set to music. We're going to hear the first one now, sung by Tenebrae, conducted by Nigel Short. My soul, there is a country far beyond the stars, where stands a winged sentry, all skilful in the wars. There, above noise and danger, sweet peace sits crowned with smiles, and one, born in a manger, commands the beauteous files. He is thy gracious friend, and, O my soul, awake, did in pure love descend to die here for thy sake. If thou canst get but thither, there grows the flower of peace, the rose that cannot wither, thy fortress and thy ease. Leave then thy foolish ranges, for none can thee secure, but one who never changes, thy God, thy life, thy cure.
Kenneth Stephen is a poet who used to live in Dunkeld, and he has been on this programme many times. Kenneth explores why people are drawn to poetry in times of crisis. Today, Kenneth looks at high points in The Horses by Edwin Muir, read by Emma Fielding. I think the same high points are to be found in poetry too, though in certain poems rather than as a general rule. The Orkney poet Edwin Muir achieves it in The Horses. Muir was banished as a child to the horrors of industrial Glasgow after idyllic early years on the island of Wire. He never returned to Orkney. One has the sense that all his life he is in exile, yearning for an Eden he cannot reach. The modern world will not let him back to the rural idyll he remembers, and yet he achieves it through a poem. The horses imagines a world devastated by atomic catastrophe, but the paradox is that horror itself brings healing. All the empty clutter of modernity is swept aside. Humanity is restored to a simple and sacred way. Barely a twelve month after the seven days war that put the world to sleep, late in the evening, the strange horses came. By then we had made our covenant with silence. But in the first few days it was so still, we listened to our breathing and were afraid. On the second day, the radios failed. We turned the knobs, no answer. On the third day, a warship passed us, heading north, dead bodies piled on the deck. On the sixth day, a plane plunged over us into the sea. Thereafter, nothing. The radio is dumb. And still they stand in corners of our kitchens. And stand, perhaps, turned on in a million rooms all over the world. But now, if they should speak. If on a sudden they should speak again. If on the stroke of noon a voice should speak. We would not listen. We would not let it bring that old bad world that swallowed its children quick at one great gulp. We would not have it again. Sometimes we think of the nations lying asleep, curled blindly in impenetrable sorrow. And then the thought confounds us with its strangeness. The tractors lie about our fields. At evening, they look like dank sea monsters, couched and waiting. We leave them where they are and let them rust. They'll moulder away and be like other loam. We make our oxen drag our rusty ploughs long laid aside we have gone back far past our father's land and then that evening late in the summer the strange horses came we heard a distant tapping on the road a deepening drumming it stopped went on again and at the corner changed to hollow thunder we saw the heads like a wild wave charging and were afraid we had sold our horses in our father's time to buy new tractors. Now they were strange to us, as fabulous steeds set on an ancient shield or illustrations in a book of knights. We did not dare go near them, yet they waited, stubborn and shy, as if they'd been sent by an old command to find our whereabouts and that long-lost archaic companionship. 
in the first moment we had never a thought that they were creatures to be owned and used. Among them were some half a dozen colts, dropped in some wilderness of the broken world, yet new, as if they had come from their own Eden. Since then they have pulled our ploughs and borne our loads, but that free servitude still can pierce our hearts. Our life is changed. Their coming, our beginning.